Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, we're talking about all things muscle-related, whether it's exercise, nutrition, the importance of muscle, health in general, and we're talking with Professor Stu Phillips. Now, Professor Phillips is well-regarded in the academic realm as being an expert in muscle, and he has over 300 published scientific papers, and his list of accolades goes on. So first, he has his PhD in human physiology, and now he's a professor at McMaster University in the Department of Kinesiology, but he's also the, the director of PACE, P-A-C-E, the Physical Activity Center of Excellence at McMaster University, and he's the director of the McMaster Center for Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Research. And he, he just has such a wide brain range of knowledge when it comes to the role of exercise for maintaining muscle, the role of nutrition and especially protein for maintaining muscle, and this balance of the need for exercise and protein for muscle, balancing some of the concerns of whether it's bone, kidney, or longevity in general. And I really like his perspective on how we have to be very cautious about interpreting the dangers of protein because making the leap from flies and animals to humans has some downside, and, and, and I think you'll appreciate some of his perspective there. But overall, the, the, one of the main take-homes I get from talking to him is, is the science is not uh, 100% settled, um, and we have to factor in who we're talking about, their age, their physical activity, um, humans or flies, and when we interpret the science, well-done science, when we interpret it, we have to interpret it with that specific lens in terms of who we're talking about. So there are also a lot of practical tips in this interview, um, whether you're 20 or 70, um, you know, tips about resistance training, the importance of resistance training, how to get started and how to maintain it over time, and what some of your guidelines or goals should be. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did uh, with this wealth of information from Professor Stuart Phillips. Well, Dr. Stu Phillips, thank you so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Brett. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. I'm, I'm really excited to talk all things muscle-related with you. And we've heard how all your accolades and over 300 published papers um, and esteemed positions and I mean, you are one of the foremost experts when it comes to muscle physiology, muscle development. But I'm really curious to hear a little bit about your background because it seems like, if I if I noticed correctly, maybe in the beginning of your career, you were sort of more focused on muscle development, building muscle, and you're sort of transitioning to sort of muscle as we age and longevity and health, long-term health-related benefits to, to having more muscle. Tell me a little bit about your philosophy of muscle and how that has impacted the uh, uh, your career and your trajectory. Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, it's an interesting, I guess, evolution. And you're, and you're quite right. I mean, I've been a McMaster. This would be uh, 23 years now. Uh, I would say the first 10 years that I was uh, on faculty, uh, my undergraduate training is actually in biochemistry, so I was more interested in the cellular level changes first. Uh, but I was an athlete, you know, the whole time I was at university, played a combination of rugby, ice hockey, anything where you could go fast and you know run into people. Um, and uh, so physical activity and being active was always a part of what I did. And it wasn't until my PhD training when I got into the physical act, uh, activity as sort of the way to push the button on a system to see how it responded as a physiological stimulus. And so, you know, I joined McMaster and their focus was really on young people. How can we give them more muscle? How can we make them bigger, stronger, faster? And it was more the sort of athletic side of things. But, you know, I think it's uh, been an evolution uh, as I've gotten older um, and transitioned out of uh, being, uh, well, I would say I'm an, sort of an athlete, but no, definitely don't really compete anymore and uh, more for fun and uh, trying to age well now um, that I began to focus more on what activity and then nutrition and the intersection did for particularly muscle uh, for people as they get older. So it was, it's, and it, it really got cemented when I uh, accepted the directorship of the Physical Activity Center of Excellence because that's a community access program and the average age of the participants is about 70, 72, so. Yes, yeah, so that really helped you sort of hone your focus then on what does muscle do for us as we age and prevent or, or prevent diseases of aging and help promote longevity. But there's there's a bit of a push and a pull there that 
it seems like um, the issues of protein are very different for younger and older people, at least by some accounts in the literature. So I want to get there, but that's just a little teaser. Because first, um, do, you, do you think for the average person worried about their health, trying to focus on their health, do they need to think about muscle when they're 30 or 40 years old? Not the athlete, not the competitive person, but just for their health. Do they need to think about muscle when they're in their 30s and 40s? So the answer, the short answer is yes. Uh, I think the harder answer is to translate for people why. And the analogy I usually use is that, you know, so for the last 30, 40 years, people in the bone world have pushed the concept of osteoporosis. And then, you know, most people would sort of say, yep, women at menopause, estrogen goes down, bones begin to get weaker, fracture risk goes up. And so the precursor to osteoporosis is osteopenia. And, you know, for the last, I would probably say about 20 years, the gerontology side of things has begun to uh, push into the field and say, you know, sarcopenia is important. And that's the sort of if you like muscle version of osteopenia, what we don't have in muscle is we don't have a fracture at the end. So there's no defined clinical endpoint for the muscle people to say, I told you muscle was a problem. So it tends to be, it, it stays high and then it begins to decline with age. And then at a certain point, probably for people into their fifties and particularly into their sixties, all of a sudden they find, Hey, I, there's certain things I can't do. And most people write it off and say, you know, that's, that's just aging. But our point is actually, if you can begin, probably, as you say, in your 20s and 30s and try and maintain that as opposed to trying to rescue yourself in your 50s and 60s, it's a much bigger investment and a better return on it, similar to trying to build up your peak bone mass before you begin to lose bone. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I love that analogy between bone health and muscle health because with bone, you can you can measure it. You have the endpoint. You talk about prevention early, but not the same thing about muscle. And and give us a, an, an overview of why is muscle so important as we age? What are the critical characteristics that it helps with? Yeah, I mean, I, I think beyond the obvious, which is its role in locomotion. You know, so if you're not strong enough to do a particular activity. And most people always say to me, you know, they're like, what's your favorite lift? And I'm like, well, you know, there's lots of them. But I, at, at a certain point in your life, it really does matter. You know, can you push yourself to get out of a chair? Once you can't do that, then you're in full-time institutionalized care. So I like to say to people, you know, if you have a hard time walking around the block, then it's a precursor to the fact that everything, your world is going to get smaller and smaller. And what really, when it transitions into um, what we call a mobility disabled condition, is that a person can't do activities of daily living, they can't take care of themselves, and somebody else has to do it for them. I think most people sort of see that as the end stage of, uh, of muscle loss, but it progresses probably through some stages that people aren't even aware of. And so you can begin to think about, so if I said to somebody in their 50s, you're looking at a flight of stairs, it's 10 feet wide and there are railings on either side. Would you descend down the middle of the stairs? And they say, oh no, I'd, I'd, I'd wanna hold on to the railing. And my point is, well, so you've made a choice based on your limited mobility to modify what it is you do. Not a big deal, but it is something that you're consciously thinking about because of you're afraid of your balance or your strength or whatever. And uh, you probably make some of those uh, decisions and changes earlier than your life in your life than you realize. But the other, I think, under, I won't say un, but underappreciated role of muscle is it's, it's essentially, I see it as a buffer against uh, insult, particularly uh, injurious, you know, infections. So, you know, we're in the time of COVID. What, what better example, right? Um, right. Or hospitalization. So whenever you're in those situations, it's as, almost as if your reserve is your muscle and your body's drawing on that pool, if you like, and we lose muscle very rapidly in those situations. So if you only have a small pool from which to draw, then you don't have a great deal of reserve. Yeah, and here I think that that analogy with bone is, is a really good one again because your bone strength may be perfectly fine to walk around and do your daily activities, but it's that reserve when you fall that you need the bone strength. And same for muscle. You may be able to do your daily activities, but if you end up in the hospital for a week or even in bed for a week with a COVID infection or a flu, then that amount is going to set you back and the, and the difficulty of recovery is, is directly proportional to your strength and your muscle mass. So I think that's, that Absolutely. analogy plays there as well. Yeah. yeah. Now, 
when, when we hear the term, you know, building muscle, I'm sure what people first think of is bodybuilders in the gym, pumping iron, sweating hard. And I, and I like to quote that you said that older adults retain the capacity to respond to resistance training, but adherence is low. And a big part of that is likely these misconceptions of what resistance training means. So when you say resistance training, when you say building muscle, how do you explain that to someone who's 50? And how do you explain it to somebody who's 70? Yeah, it, a great question. I mean, it was it was easy when I was working with young folks and athletes and say, you know what, they, they, they adhere to the idea that you know, the off season was a time to get ready for the season. And so that's when you hit the gym and you did all your stuff to kind of build these base layers. And it was just part of what they did. If you've never spent time in a, in a weight room lifting weights, um, you know, and I'm not talking about lifting weights just solely from a bodybuilder's perspective, although that's the picture most people come up with uh, from an aesthetic standpoint, but from a functional standpoint to be able to do a particular activity. So that's an athletic event, easy, easy line to make. If it's, you know, getting stronger or being strong so that you can age well, that's a harder sort of future vision to, to come up with. So even older people in their 70s and 80s retain the capacity if they lift something that's relatively heavy. I don't, you know, worry too much about how heavy, but something that when they get to about the eighth or ninth or maybe even 12th or 13th time that they're lifting it, they're like, Whoa, this is pretty heavy. Then I'm like, you know what, you've just done something for your muscle and your muscle pulled on a tendon, your tendon pulled on a bone. And so you've actually done something for your musculoskeletal system. That's very, very beneficial in terms of making yourself stronger and able to withstand the insults that we talked about earlier, but you're right. 50 year old, I think it's, it's hard, but not as hard as it would be to take somebody who's 70 and say, hey, we need you to lift these weights. I do think that in the time I've even been at McMaster, the message is beginning to come across and people are beginning to understand that it's important to be, yeah, everybody gets it. I need to be lean when I get older. I don't need to be overweight. Um, I need to be fit and physically active. But the message about being strong is now something I think that more people are beginning to say, yeah, that's important too, because I see that there are areas where strength is an important outcome. Part of the, I think that's even more of a reason to emphasize it early in, in your 40s and 50s, that when you get to your 60s and 70s, it's not a brand new concept that you have to learn for the first time, but you've already got some background, some baseline, some knowledge, some experience, which is going to make it that much easier. Because otherwise, it seems like it's pretty challenging for a 70-year-old to start with resistance training for the very first time versus if they've had some experience. Do you find that to be true as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the in PACE, in our Physical Activity Center for Excellence, we have programs that are for just for seniors. I mean, anybody over the age of 55, and I know a lot of people would say, whoa, hold on, but that's <laughs> where we start. And the point is, is that, uh, you know, if you start earlier, I think it's a better investment, but we do have people that show up in their 70s and they have never lifted a weight and but they they're familiar there i need to walk i need to and i'm like but you need to be strong too uh, but we have patients that are younger than that that are cardiac rehabilitation patients for example uh for whom it's again it's a new experience but the way we try and explain it is to say is that there's a lot of activities that you do throughout the day where you just need a little bit of strength it's actually probably power as much as in People say, well, what are you talking about? I say, well, you know, when you take your case and, well, when we used to fly, you know, you put it in the overhead uh, and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, do you want to be able to do that? Or do you want somebody to be able to do it, have to do it for you? And they're like, yeah, but that's not very often. And I'm like, what about this? And we give them a list of things and they're like, okay. I'm like, what if you had to, you know, go and lay some sod on your lawn or you had to go and put something on your roof or so, oh, I wouldn't do that. So you know, those are activities that we try and point out to people are important to have strength for. Yeah, and, and so you mentioned the walking and sort of the cardio. You know, in the 80s and 90s, cardio was king. Everybody was talking about the importance of cardio. And it seems like now in the maybe since 2010 or so that now strength is king. And it's like almost like you have to be in one of the camps. Either you're in the strength camp or the cardio camp. Cardio is for suckers. Strength is great or vice versa. 
or is there an interplay between them? So someone who wants to maximize their health, their metabolic health, their fitness, their independence, what do you recommend in terms of strength, cardio, combination of the two? How do you see that? You've, you've hit the nail on the head. I think it's, you know, I think when we get our textbook learning, and this is how we teach exercise physiology to our undergraduate students, is we, you know, we have the bodybuilders here and we have the marathon runners here. And it's sort of like, this is the epitome of aerobic training. This is the epitome of resistance training. And I think the point I like to say is that these people are, you know, in terms of their body shape, physique, size, and how fast and far they can run, they are four standard deviations away from the mean. I said, and the rest of you mere mortals, I said, we're all clustered in here. Uh, I said, so you can push yourself in one direction or another, but, you know, as you get older, uh, it really benefits you to be aerobically fit for sure. So, and if it's only walking, I'm okay with that. Um, but it does benefit you to be strong as well. So really, and I have a good friend and colleague at McMaster, Dr. Martin Gabala, and we have an online course that where we sort of say, you know, Dr. Gabala is the aerobic hit guy and I'm the resistance training guy. And then eventually we come back together and we're like, you got to have both. And, yeah. you know, people who are going to do well uh, into their uh, later years are people who are, uh, cardiovascular wise are fit and uh, strength wise are relatively strong. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what kind of guidelines do you give people? Cause I know, um, doing what you can do is the most important thing. Doing something is the most important thing, but if somebody wanted to hit that sweet spot of frequency, duration, and intensity, what is, what is your general advice for where that sweet spot is? Three days a week, five days a week, 30 minutes, an hour, you know, muscle fatigue, whatever the case may be. What, what's your sweet spot? I'm going to stray away from the physical activity guidelines. 150 minutes, you have to do two days a week of resistance. Most people go, who's got that amount of time? And I'm like, fair enough. Uh, so, you know, you, again, relying on uh, Dr. Martin Gabala's work and sort of the high intensity work. I'm like, try and do one day a week where if it's walking or anything, try and walk up a hill or walk up flights of stairs to challenge yourself from a heart and lung perspective. And then a couple other days a week, make sure you get out for a walk. At least two days a week, I dedicate to doing something that's going to make you a bit stronger. And the lifts that really count are obviously the big ones. So it's something to do with your legs, something probably that's a pushing exercise, and then something that's a pulling exercise. Where you fall in terms of number of reps, et cetera, I think depends on what your goal is. But, you know, something where we're trying to get people to reach, I call it a high intensity of effort. Around our center, we have uh, the Borg scale with the colors, you know, everywhere you can see. And we like to say to people, try and hit an eight out of 10 on that scale. If you're having a day where you're not feeling too good and you're like, really, the best I can do is a six today, I'm like, that's okay. Uh, but we don't need you to, you know, go to number 10 and feel like the red zone. Um, but if you're a young athlete, then that's really where you need to be a lot of the time to promote the adaptation. Uh, but I think for people who are, this is where I want to be for the long term, we say intensity eight out of 10 when you lift. Uh, it's generally, it starts with, uh, it's mostly circuit work. And then we begin to split it up. Usually push, pull and legs are the divisions that we have. But um What's your goal? What do you want to be? Where do you want to, what do you want to do? If uh, somebody who's in their sixties says, Hey, I want to go into a powerlifting competition. Well, it's an entirely different set of set of rules, but uh, for most of us, again, the mere mortals, I have to say, hang around in the middle um, two days a week of resistance, at least one day a week of some harder aerobic work and another couple of days a week where you're doing something aerobic, even if it's a walk or a bike ride. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good advice. Now, now the other thing that I find so interesting is this interplay between resistance training or exercise in general and nutrition and specifically the role of protein. And there are a number of studies out there, many that you have even done looking at resistance training sort of with a higher protein and lower protein nutrition, or looking at protein, you know, kind of with or without resistance training. So first let's, let's talk about resistance training with low versus high protein. Um, what do you see as the, the main benefit of including a higher protein diet with resistance training? And how do you define that in terms of amount of protein? Uh, so I think that there's, you know, a few things that kind of lay the groundwork is that uh, 
protein as a nutrient as opposed to fat and carbohydrates, which when we eat them, we have a great ability to store fat, no, almost endless, unfortunately. Uh, and carbohydrates, we do have a limited capacity, but we can store them. Protein, we can't. We can't store it. So we have to eat it. And the amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein, have to be used in the immediate time after they've been consumed. And so it's not like you can sort of stock it away and put it somewhere and then release it later. Although our muscle is a store for protein, it's not designed to be a storage depot, for example. But having said that, uh, I think most people can appreciate that if you're going to build more yeah, name it, muscle or any protein-containing structure in your body, even bone is about 40% by composition protein, uh, then you need to provide more building blocks or more substrates. So that's the higher protein as opposed to the normal level of protein. Um, to be, you know, numbers and specifics, the, the so-called recommended dietary allowance um, is set at 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. So, you know, make the math easy. Uh, so for a hundred kilogram or a 220 pound man, that's, that's only 80 grams of protein. Um, it's, it's not a lot of protein. So our position is that particularly when you get a little bit older, uh, you need to be consuming somewhere in the neighborhood. I generally say about double that, about 1.6 grams per kilo per day. And what that does is that allows for efficient replacement of the damaged proteins in your body in a phase when you're actually beginning to lose some of your muscle and protein mass. So that then in combination with the resistance exercise is really the best of both worlds. You've got the anabolic stimulus of the exercise and you've got the substrates, the two of them together, it's a much better uh, picture than either one alone. Although if you had to pick one, it's definitely to do the exercise. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And, and you mentioned the RDA at, at 0.8 grams per kilogram. And and what, what I like to point out is that that is to prevent protein deficiency, which is a far cry from sort of the optimal amount of protein for health and wellness. And I think that's something that yeah. we really need to be very clear about. Um, but the, yeah, the other question totally. is, uh, when you talk about grams per kilo of body weight. Are you talking about actual body weight? Are you talking about lean body weight, ideal body weight? Because that's another topic that can be confusing, which unfortunately for some people, there's a big difference in those two numbers. Yeah, yeah. I think in it, you know, circling back to your, your comment about the, the minimal intake of the RDA, I always say to people, you know, I will be happy if we, instead of calling it the recommended dietary allowance, because it means two things. First, that's what we recommend, which yeah. I don't think is and it's all you're allowed. And I don't think that, so it's a semantic thing. But I said, if we, if we call that the minimum dietary intake, all good. And, and I could walk away and we wouldn't have an argument, but it, it's a semantic argument. But I think the main point, as you say, is that um, we, body weight is used because it's the most common thing people have. And you know, fewer people have an idea of their lean mass, although it's probably the better indicator to which you wanted to normalize your body, um, your protein intake, excuse me. I think the main point I would say, and this is how we generally tend to do it, is that up to a BMI of about 30, we say, you know, body weight, no problem. Once you get above 30, we begin to say, well, what if, what if, what if we normalize it to ideal body weight? Because as you say, you could have somebody with a BMI of 40, and then you, you, know, you make these calculations, and they're eating 300 grams of protein a day. And so that's not a practical intake. So we tend to use ideal when you get up into the higher BMI ranges as opposed to actual body weight. If you know your lean mass, normalize it to that and uh, you're, you're, you're set, no problem at all. Yeah, that's a great point. I like, I like how you have that cutoff and you have to pick somewhere. So 30 seems like a reasonable cutoff to, to switch sure. from totally body weight to ideal body weight. And I really like the, yeah. the minimum, what was it? The minimum daily intake, yeah. the MDI minimum, instead of the RDA. Yeah, minimum daily intake or something like that. The, the analogy I give to people, and, and you raised it, it's, it's fantastic, is to say, you know, a long time ago we knew that you needed to have some vitamin C to prevent scurvy. You know, on a long mm -hmm. sea voyage, they didn't have anything from it, like a citrus fruit, you, you didn't do too well. Um, and so we figured out what the minimum intake of vitamin C was to prevent scurvy. But now we know that a little more than the minimum is actually associated with health benefits. But that translation hasn't yet 
you know, fallen out for protein, if it ever will, I, I'm not sure. But so we're talking more, you know, more than the minimum, but in an optimal range is, is I suppose, the way to uh, envision it. Right. Right. The optimal range. And now, whenever we use the word optimal range, the question is optimal for what? And here's where I find this also really interesting because you you pick the 1.6 grams per kilo. And I think the literature is pretty clear that for maximum muscle building effect that it sort of tapers off or it doesn't, doesn't taper down, but it, it, it ceases to increase after about 1.6 grams per kilo. But do you think more protein than that could have other benefits beyond um, the muscle stimulating effects? And, and the reason I pose this question is, is 1.6 really the ceiling that people want to stay below? Or could there be other benefits in addition to the muscle building when you go above the 1.6? Yeah, I, I think, you know, from our perspective and this, so the 1.6 comes from a, you know, a meta-analysis that we did. And then we essentially look for, as you said, it's sort of a I mean, protein and stimulating muscle growth is a dose response. So it goes up and then it tends to plateau off. So if you ingest 1.6 versus say two grams uh, per, per kilo, um, then there might be a small benefit in terms of muscle mass gain um, during training, but it is relatively small. So from the pure sort of, you know, pharmacokinetic, you know, drug dose response, it's 1.6 and going higher generally tends to not do anything for muscle or do, does less for muscle. Uh, could it do something else? You know, protein is a nutrient, very satiating, uh, high thermic effect, uh, good uh, in terms of a substrate that if you're going to overeat, quote unquote, it doesn't turn into fat very easily. And there could be greater benefits. One of the chief ones of which is the people who tend to eat more protein, and particularly if it's animal source protein, they just have greater nutrient density in their diet. And so because of the nutrients that come along with the animal source protein and that are not impossible to find from plant source proteins, but harder, like you have to be very judicious, I think, to plan a, a plant-based diet to get the types of protein intakes that I'm talking, not impossible, but it's tougher work. Yeah, I, I really like two two take homes from what you just said there. That that at one point six or above one point six, there may still be some benefit to muscle stimulus and muscle growth, although at a much less steep curve. And maybe the more physically active you are, then the more that will benefit you. Um, but also the other benefits to higher protein, the thermic effect, the satiating effect, the nutrient density, all those other things go into play for health benefits in general, maybe not for muscle stimulation, but for you know losing fat mass, for metabolic health, um, all, many other benefits. So I think that's a great um, intersection that when we're, we're talking about muscle health, but we can also expand it to the broader concept of health in general. I, I think you, you've uh, you summarized that perfectly. I think most people generally have the concept that the leanness that you enter the later stages of your life, or if you're an athlete, for example, has strategic advantages and you tend to do a lot better metabolically. There's, there's no question about that. So, you know, I, I've given talks where we talk about weight loss effects and we are, you know, our lab has done a little bit of weight loss work. And what we always find with, uh, with protein is that people on high ER versus low ER protein diets, uh, have an easier time losing body fat. They tend to retain more muscle. And then if we throw exercise in the mix, then everything just gets better. You can actually, and I know a lot of people uh, kind of grind on this one. And, and, you know, one time in my life, I taught at undergrads. I said, you know, it's impossible to gain muscle in an energy deficit. And we, and we know now that that's not true. It's done by aesthetic sport and uh, combative sport athletes all the time. And, um, Old, even older people can do it too. So uh, pe people my age. So uh, if I can do it, then it's uh, <laughs> it's hope for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's such a good point. The ability to maintain and build muscle in an energy deficit. So losing fat, losing weight, but building muscle, and that's something that that has been confused. So I think that's that's a great point to make that you can do that, and that is a a very reasonable goal. Now, the the other thing about protein, though is um, the per meal amount, because we hear your body can't absorb and use more than 30 grams in any one setting. Yeah. And that's sort of like folklore with maybe some data behind it. But what do you think the strength of that data is? And what are your recommendations for that? And 
both for people who are eating three meals a day and people who are doing time-restricted eating and maybe only eating one or two meals a day? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. And it begins to, you know, sort of get into this area where I like to say to people, look, you know, we've done some work and other people have done work. And so my answer is uh, science-based in some part and then some speculation in others. So let me just say this is that, you know, if you're eating 1.6 and you're a three meal per day person, so breakfast, lunch, and dinner, then that's about, you know, 0.53 grams of protein per kilogram per meal if you wanted to evenly space it, which I would recommend um, as opposed to, you know, a small amount of breakfast, a great, a big amount at lunch, and then, you know, even bigger amount of dinner. It's better that they be sort of more even. Um, so if you, if dinner is your only protein meal, maybe take some of that protein and know have it at the breakfast meal uh if you're somebody who's you know sort of trying to compress that and is is uh time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting that's not the i don't think optimal way to deliver protein to stimulate protein synthesis so deliver the blocks but it does provide one big stimulus in which your body probably adapts a little differently so this is where things get really uh interesting and we we tend to think is that, you know, everything we've done is based on the breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the three meals a day. So we don't know as much about somebody who's time-restricted feeding. What we do know in the weight loss situation is that it may actually be that you adapt to that somehow to sort of upregulate the synthetic capacity for bigger meals. Now, how long does that take? How much and everything? Those are all great questions. And I, I don't have the answers to, to those. I don't think anybody does. We had a great little chat about that on, on Twitter the other day with a few uh, people chiming in. Very civilized chat on Twitter. They don't happen very often, but <laughs> just you know, sort of saying like, what, what do you think happens here? And people are like, I think this, I think, and, and but everybody sort of said, yeah, we, we really don't know. Um, I think one thing that, you know, just to clear up a bit of a myth is that um, we, we probably contributed to this, although uh, uh, I think it was the, uh, the poor interpretation of what we showed. So between 20 and 30 grams is about the most that your muscle can sort of use if that's the right thing. So you could eat 60 grams of protein, and I don't think your muscle would be able to do much more with that amount of protein. But you can certainly eat it, digest it, and absorb it. It doesn't mean you know you capped out at 30 but we think 30 is about where your muscle can sort of that's where it taps out but remember all the other protein structures in your body need protein as well but as i said it tends to be that you use it in the time after it's eaten after that you know most every system from birds to you know fish and and, and mammals have evolved a system to take off nitrogen make an end product and excrete it. If you're a fish, it's ammonia. If you're a bird, it's uric acid. If you're a mammal, it's urea. So once you've taken the nitrogen off of the amino acid, it's it's not useful anymore as, as an amino acid. So I think it's important to realize you can, you can put a lot of protein into the system and it can handle that, no problem. It's just what it does with that and where it goes, I think is the key thing. And muscle, it appears, sort of taps out at around probably, you know, 30 grams, let's say, of, of protein or about 0.4 to 0.5 grams per kilo per meal. Yeah. And is how active you are, does that play into that as well? That if you're, if you're stimulating your muscles more, working your muscles more, then maybe that number goes up a little bit. And if you're sedentary, maybe that number goes down a little bit. The way that I uh, tend to talk about physical activity uh, and how it relates to people's muscles, as I say, is it... Um, it's like making, turning your muscles into a sponge. They become very sort of, you know, they crave the water or the nutrients. They, they're very receptive to nutritional delivery in the post-exercise phase. So if you're more active, uh, you can probably put more protein on board and your muscle can make greater use of that. So, you know, that's the rationale behind you lift, eat more, you, you lift more, you eat more and, and so forth and back and forth. But it's, you know, it's, it's energy and calories as much as it is protein. So, you know, it's, it, there's a great time in, you know, probably everybody's and every particular young man's life is when they're between the ages of probably about 13. And I would say 22, 23, when it's like, you're like, you can just shovel so much into the furnace, particularly if you're active and it's like, you know, particularly mothers look at their sons and go, 
where are you putting that? You know, I mean, most of it's going to growth, right? It's, you know, you're getting taller and broader and everything, but if you're physically active in that time, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the father of three boys. And so the, I watched the amount of food that they eat. And I, and I think, you know, one time I used to be able to do that, but if I did that now, I, I would, you know, I would weigh a lot more than I do. Yeah. We can't help, but look at that with a little bit of jealousy though. I'm sure. I mean, yeah, I, I remember the days. Yeah. 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 No, I was eating three big meals a day, plus like just yep. downing pop tarts and power bars and, and yeah. fruit like around my workouts. And it was just, couldn't tell and I, I couldn't keep enough in, but now whew, yeah. different story. Yeah. <laughs> I do warn them. I say, you know, enjoy your time now. I said, because the time will come and they're like, yeah, sure. You know? And I, so I think, uh, and I, I listened to a, a talk not too long ago with a guy named Hal Johnson, who's a Canadian fella. He and his wife have been sort of, you know, active uh, promoters of physical activity for a long time. And he talked about at a time in your life, you begin to form a vision of your future you. Uh, in your 20s, your future you is, you know, two days from now, or, you know, from a Tuesday, it's, you know, what are we doing Friday night? Uh, in your 30s, I think it's probably, you know, a lot of us are it's wife, kids, and all the kinds of things like that. Your 40s, you're like, yeah, I want to get ahead. And in your 50s, all of a sudden, you're thinking, actually, I'm closer to that end of my job than I am to this end. So, you know, how do I want to be? How do I want to age? And what is it I want to do when I, I'm not working? And maybe, you know, my partner and I, we're doing something different. So uh, I think it's important in those times to think if you want to do something physically active, you've got to put a little bit of money in the bank. And in that case, it's being physically active to be able to be active later in life. Yeah, it's a great philosophy. I love that perspective. Now, now, when we're talking about protein and the importance of protein for muscle stimulation and muscle growth and overall health, you know, we, people probably think steak and chicken and low-fat cottage cheese and, you know, the, the foods, and there are, there are so many good, healthy, wonderful, high-protein foods, but a number of people, and stereotypically women, find they have a harder time getting the right amount of protein, right? Like two eggs... It seems like a lot of protein for some people, but that's what only 12 grams of protein. That's not even, you know, that's half, less than half of what you should have at one meal. So some people can really struggle to get enough protein, which could be a role for protein shakes, protein supplements. So what do you think about the health benefits and muscle building benefits of real food protein versus supplements? You know, the pragmatic message is, is always food first, if you can. I, the, the way I put it to people is particularly, you know, women are very concerned about, you know, first, you know, they, they, we say, you know, you got to lift some weights and they're like, I don't want to bulk up. And I'm like, look, um, if, if you start to feel like you're bulking up, you let me know and we'll change something. But I've yet to hear somebody say, Hey, I'm bulking up yet. Um, and then they say, well, yeah, you're right. Uh, I, this amount of protein, it's too much from a food perspective. And I'm like, well, you only have a certain calorie budget and you want to get a, the amount of protein that you need. You also need to get the nutrients that you need. And generally speaking, that's harder if you're going to do it just from supplements than from food. So it's always food first. And, you know, I think one thing with all of these diet wars that's maybe forgotten is about the you know, food is more than just nutrition. I, I there's nothing I enjoy more than sitting down for a meal with friends, family. And, uh, you know, so it should be a celebration as well. Um, but uh, if, you, if you do struggle, uh, and I think if you're having a harder time hitting these protein intakes, then, then supplements can be useful. Uh, they tend to be, particularly if they're isolated uh, protein supplements, free from other macronutrients. And so they are the caloric equivalent of if that's pure protein and you don't have to worry about fats and, and carbohydrates. Um, I would use them sparingly. I would say that the best thing that they are is to make things convenient for people uh, and not begin to lean on them so much that you're, you're displacing actual food intake uh, with, with supplements. Um, so, uh, but, but there's lots of them now and they, and the other thing is in the last 20, 30 years, man, have they made them taste better <laughs> so that the stuff that's out there now tastes like, you know, it's awesome. I, I grew up eating Joe Weider shakes and, 
you know, Joe and uh, and his brother did a great service for bodybuilding, but literally you plug your nose and you ate those things. They weren't they weren't the best tasting. So everything now to me just tastes. I'm like, this is cookies and cream. I'm like, are you kidding me? Come on, cookies and cream protein. No, this is too much. So they they do taste a lot better. And I've got a lot of um, friends, and we've doing we're doing some experimental work even with uh, with plant based protein supplements now. And I've I've been super impressed with uh, how good these things taste. To be honest, yeah, which is good for people who need them, but which also can be a little bit dangerous because you look forward to your protein shake, and it's like a little dessert and a little treat, and you look yeah. forward to it. And so then it becomes <laughs> it can become a replacement instead of a supplement. So even the word supplement is meant to supplement your food not replace your food. So I, I think you made that point well, but that's, yeah, I think that's important. Now, when it comes to protein though, we're talking about muscle benefits. Um, we're talking about overall health benefits, but it seems like protein also has a dark side that a lot of people talk about. Um, longevity researchers are pretty down on protein. So whether it's Walter Longo or even people who are sort of pro-protein, like professors uh, Rubenheimer and Simpson, um, out in Australia, they're pro-protein, but say, but not too much protein. So there's this concern that too much protein worsens longevity and data from animals, from flies, from rats, um, and some weak quality observational data in humans, um, they use that to, to back their claims. So how do you see this whole minefield of protein for muscle stimulation, for um, satiety, uh, for the thermic effect, for metabolic health versus balancing this potential for longevity? Really good question. Um, so I, I, my two writer, my two public service announcements is most people, when you say protein, they're like, makes your bones go soft. And I'm like, that, unequivocally untrue. Um, doesn't happen. Just, you know, it's wrong. So I won't get into it because I want to answer your question. Uh, the other one is protein causes your kidneys to fail. And uh, let's just say again, lots of meta-analyses out there looking at observational as well as clinical trial data. No evidence that that's the case. Um, circular data is people with kidney disease put on low protein diets their kidney function is preserved for longer, but that doesn't mean that it's protein that caused the kidney issues that they had. So I'll just leave those two out there, but I feel always like I have to say them. Um, yeah. And those are, those are really important. I don't mean to interrupt, but those are important because those seem like two myths that just won't die despite the evidence to the contrary. So. No, I, and, and I went on a, I went on a spree because I teach undergraduate students of writing to people who publish nutrition textbooks and said, you got to take that. It's wrong. It's, it's, you know, and after, you know, 30 letters that I'd written, no response, I'm like, so, okay, clearly this is a waste of my time. <laughs> but, but you're right. It, it, I think it needs to be addressed. The, the issue of protein and longevity is an interesting one. And, and you know, all credit, great science. And uh, you mentioned Jeff Simpson, Rabenheimer, uh, Walter Longo, like fantastic scientists. And I think it's an interesting paradigm. The one big thing that happens in humans that doesn't happen in any of the animal model systems that I think is particularly important and really is the true watershed for most people as they get older is a period of being challenged with uh, a catabolic stimulus. We mentioned bed rest. We mentioned infection. You, we talk, you talked about the flu. It's not a uniquely Canadian phenomenon, but let's just say Every February, barring the past February, which was actually interesting because there were far fewer flu cases because people were doing all the measures to avoid getting COVID. But every other February, we've had a bed crisis due to uh, people with flu. And then you convalesce from flu and it's minus good knows what outside. And you don't want to go outside and shovel snow or slip on a sidewalk. So you remain sedentary for two to three weeks. During that period, if your muscle mass is going down anyway, and then all of a sudden you have this one of these disuse periods, you take a big dip, and then all of a sudden you sort of level out. So now you're, you've jumped from one curve to another one very rapidly, probably in the space of about a month or two months. And the substrate that you've drawn on and to try and combat that is muscle. You've tried to pull the amino acids back out because you don't tend to eat as much lost a lot of the anabolic capacity, you want to fuel your immune system, and people who have a low reserve in those situations don't do as well. 
Those situations, I don't think are ubiquitous, but they're experienced with older people, they are experienced by older people much more often. And no lab animal or fruit fly or, or you know, ever experiences those things. That's when the, the homeostatic system is challenged to be able to supply uh, all of the amino acids that you need for robust physical and I think immune function as well. So great models, great data, uh, great sort of uh, scientific tangents, uh, you know, uh, dwarfs who don't have uh, growth hormone, for example, low rates of cancer, as Walter Longo points out, lots of knockout animal stuff. And I think it's, I think it's brilliant. The last part that the extension onto human beings is where I actually think that these inactivity periods are critical because they're, they're the watershed moment. When you're young, you have one of these, you just bounce right back. No problem. Yeah. When you're older, you don't. And so you need to have something to rely on. You need to have something to fall back on. And that's a protein and, uh, and proteins mass, which is really skeletal muscle. Uh, that you have in store um, and the transition to frailty, the transition to poor mobility, the transition to lots of metabolic diseases is around that disuse period. And if you're a low protein person in that period, I don't think you do too well. So let's just say as well, and, and I think I can say it now with a bit more confidence since the paper is actually submitted. So reviewers willing we have some observational data that would directly challenge the idea that protein is always, uh, you know, higher protein intake begets uh, greater incidence of cancer as well. So I think when you look at the totality of even the observational data in humans, pretty mixed. And it's not as clear cut as, you know, the Simpson-Rabenheimer nutritional geometry models. But I don't want to take anything away from that science. I do think that there's sort of broader pictures to be uh, explained in that, but there's a lot of other variables that need to be taken into account. And, and, and it's rare, I'll be honest, that I say that because all of the other data, as you say, it goes from flies to, to, to mice to rats. And then you've got, you know, uh, Jeff and David have, they have stuff, you know, from animals uh, that they look at and, and it, it sort of seems to fit and, and I get it. Uh, I think human beings are a much more complicated system that have periods of disuse and, and disease and, and infection that really don't happen in lab animal situations. Uh, so I'd like, if they're going to do more work, I'd like to see it have one of those periods and see how animals that are on lower protein actually do. Yeah. So, so well said. And, and, Again, I'm a big fan of Professors Robinheimer and Simpson and their and their work and very elegant work with the locusts. Yeah, I mean they've 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 really done a lot to contribute to the science. And but like you're saying, the 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 leap from animals to humans is missing that part about how we are different and how we have these these ups and downs that we need to recover from that lab animals don't. So 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 well said. And the other part is, I guess, the benefits that you get by having active muscle and by by having, or, and especially if you started with insulin resistance and you, or you started with type two diabetes and you're trying yeah. to reverse that, I and mean, that has longevity benefits. So how does that interplay with any any longevity offset? And I can't wait to see your paper coming out, uh, reviewers willing, like you said, that, that talks about uh, the observational data. So I don't wanna push you too much. I don't know how much you can say and how much you can't, but um, what, what can you tell us about that paper that you're allowed to say? Yeah, that I'm allowed to say. Well, let's just say that I probably talked about that paper for about three or four years. And so it's, I've talked about it for an embarrassingly long period of time before something actually got done. So my, my uh, again, hand on heart confession is uh, it's not really the type of work I do. I, you know, we do interventional studies. We do uh, pretty methodologically based stuff. Um, the paper that galvanized the, my interest in this area and, and wanting to sort of push back a little bit actually came, Walter Longo is the senior author on it, and um, Levine is the first author. And it's, got a, it's a combination of some great mechanistic biology from, from Walter Longo's lab, and then it's a, uh, some data from the NHANES survey and looking at uh, disease risk with people that are higher versus lower protein intake. 
And let's just say is that um, I think that the biology and the and nutritional aspects for, and the mechanistic stuff rock solid. I think it's great. But the human data that comes from the Aidenhain stuff uh, leaves, from my perspective, a little bit to be desired from a methodological analytical standpoint. But I don't do that analysis, but I poked and prodded some people to do for long enough that they... Uh, I think they finally just broke down and said, okay, okay, we'll do it, so to speak. So, um, yeah, look look for it pretty soon. Vic Fulgoni had a little hand in that. He's a he's a great guy with NHANES data uh, and a good friend of mine, uh, a fellow Canadian. I'll, I'll, like, I'll let it speak for itself when it comes out. It, it, it'll, it'll, I'm sure you'll, you'll see it. It'll create some waves. Good. Well, I look forward to that very much. So, All right. and then the other the other topic that you've already brought up is the plant versus animal sources of protein, uh, and yeah. how that how they are different. Um, so, how are they different when it comes to muscle stimulation? And you know, like you said, you can you can do you can get enough protein if you're a vegan. But what sort of um, I don't know what sort of advice do you give somebody who's concerned about uh, animal protein and wants to focus more on plant protein? What are the general considerations for muscle health and general health? You know, so again, the the disclaimer is, um, you know, eating a eating a vegan diet, or particularly if you're lacto ovo vegan, very healthy way to eat. And uh, you know, so no no uh, sort of hacks against the diet or the approach itself. It's not what I practice. I think there are lots of reasons for people to want to practice it and ethical and environmental aside from the metabolic and health wise and everything else like that. Um, from a muscle standpoint and the truism is, is the quality of protein in animal sources tends to be better than plant sources. That's just, that's just reality. It's not, I didn't make that up. It's that's the way it is. Is it so much different that you would have to worry about it? I think when you're younger and you're physically active and you're doing all these things, so you're getting, all of the stimuli that are probably, particularly if you're, say, growing, uh, probably not as big a deal. But if you're into the latter stages of your life and you're anabolically resistant to the normal effects of protein, and quality then begins to matter. So in situations of higher stress, so we talk about you know, intensive care patients, it's always the highest quality protein that you want to get into those patients, be able to give them the essential amino acids, to be anabolic, if indeed they can be anabolic. The situation's the same in older people. It's, just, I mean, the curve's like this at some point. Everybody says, when does that start? I'm like, well, I think this year it might be 56. Next year it might be 57. And they're like, how do you get so specific? I said, oh, I think it's more of a personal observation, but you, you get my point, right? I, I don't know when it starts, but it definitely starts. So the curve is downwards. And then anything that you can do to sort of, instead of having the curve do this, you know, if you're physically active, I think you've have probably the greatest effect and the protein bends it probably a little bit more, but definitely those times where you have that drop due to infection, inactivity, hospitalization is a, it's a tough one on, on uh, musculoskeletal yeah. systems. Then you need to try and intervene. Plant proteins, uh, you're going to struggle uh, in those periods of time. And, um, you know, I have a good colleague and friend in, at the University of Toronto, uh, Glenda Courtney Martin, and in her lab, they actually showed that the leucine requirements, leucine is one particular amino acid, are twice as high in older people as the current recommendations. So that amino acid is sort of like, it's it's kind of like the, the building block that it, when it shows up, everything else in muscle takes off. And, you know, if your requirements for that amino acid are twice as high, then you're going to have to work pretty hard to get plant source proteins to provide you sufficient leucine to be able to overcome those periods. So it'd be interesting to, to see how that plays out. That that's a very recent finding. And uh, we're only yet now, I think, beginning to realize what protein quality does for older people. But uh, my recommendation is, you know, if you're, if you're, good shape and you're physically active and you're keeping yourself, you know, the curves like, you know, not as steep and sort of like this, then plant probably not a bad way to go. It, when those catabolic periods uh, show up, then uh, I think you need to intervene aggressively. And 
plant protein, you might struggle a little bit. Yeah, I think that's well said. And, and there's plenty of knowledge out there about combining plant proteins to make complete proteins because by themselves, most are not complete proteins with all nine essential amino acids, but that's easy enough to do. You may have to eat more um, because the bioavailability is less. And like you're saying, when you're young and have a lot of reserve, those things matter less. But when you're older and more frail and need more protein and more muscle stimulation, then they matter a whole lot more. And you mentioned leucine, the importance of leucine uh, for building muscle. And so I guess when you when people talk about amino acids and the benefits of leucine, they frequently talk about at the same time the concerns about methionine. So do you yeah. have concerns about methionine as well? Would you want to separate those or do you say all amino acids are good and bring them in? What needs to be done is, and, and it could even be like, I mean, if somebody who's into more of the protein restriction side of things and someone like myself were to get together and say, you know, so what's the real answer and, and try and have sort of a point counterpoint or like, here's the good, here's the bad, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you're right. So, so my take on things is a little different. I, I focus on trying to push anabolism and growth to the extent that's possible now and the protein restriction, caloric restriction, methionine restriction. And I know everybody sort of says they're, they're all different from some standpoint that they are, but the fundamental truism of all of those, I think anyway, is that what they do is that they, they deprive the system of essential nutrients for a period of time or one particular amino acid. So the system gets really, really tightened up. And I, I just call it efficiency in the system goes up. Like, and that's just human adaptation. Like, and people say, what are you talking about? I'm like, look, if we couldn't adapt to, you know, a restriction of food or a protein or something, we wouldn't be here on this planet. And I said, we're not, in the last 100 years, restriction really hasn't been the issue. We've had plenty of food, you know, or maybe the last 50 years, you know, uh, in most places in the world. I think that that's fair to say. Um, so th they talk about the improvement and efficiency of the system, whereas I talk about actually trying to make the system function better from another side of things. I think leucine is important for the anabolic side, and it most certainly is. And even Walter Longo now, instead of his protein or fasting mimicking diet where protein gets low, he's added back in now a protein refeed phase. So realizing that you actually do need to sort of, if you like, recover from that restrictive period. So you can't keep doing it indefinitely. Yeah. Um, so you know, weight loss and some of the calorie trials and, you know, sort of long-term caloric restriction. Yeah. For the, the hardy, the tough, the, you know, there's always a group of people, you name the dietary approach, they're early adopters and they gain some advantage, weight loss, whatever it is. And then actually you can't budge them off of that no matter what. So, um, if it works for them, and there's no more powerful a phrase to, to, to convince somebody I'm not going to listen to you is it works for me. <laughs> and then I, I just go, okay, man, it's all good. <laughs> but, 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 you know, so it would be a good, a good conversation to have with a, with a Walter Longo and to say, you know, in those studies that have you thought about this, but, um, I won't, I won't hack the science. It's great science. I'm, I'm impressed as heck by uh, the stuff that he and, uh, and other people in that area do. But I, I do see some commonality of that restrictive phase as opposed to me pushing the let's try and get the anabolism up. I'll, I'll be honest in saying that every time I talk about anabolism, I always say it's really tough to do it with just diet. And you, you've got to have the physical activity there. Maybe that's my condition that makes me think that you know, some of the bad effects of the protein are to some degree negated. Um, I have a, a good friend and colleague, and I borrow his phrase, which is to say exercise is the forgiver of many sins. So uh, metabolically, uh, for, for sure. Yeah, exercise is the forgiver of many sins. I, I like that a lot. And, and, and again, it, your, your answer is one thing that they really show is that just because the science is, is good science and well-done trials on one side doesn't mean the interpretation that we have for humans in the complexity of our lives is always right. So if, you know, bad science is, is bad science, but good science isn't always properly interpreted and applied to humans in our complexities and our different stages of life. And I think that's a really good 
nuance and really good specifics that you brought up that, that really help us interpret this as not settled science. There's still a lot we don't know. And the future looks bright because so many people like yourself, like all your labs and your colleagues, they're, they're very interested in this field. And um, I think this has been a, a wonderful tour of the importance of resistance training, of physical activity, and the interplay of nutrition and, and a lot of the specifics. So hopefully people will walk away from this uh, with some really good take-homes about what they can do to improve their muscular health and their health in general. Uh, so if people want to learn more about all the work you've done and hear more about you, where are some good places to direct them to find you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I spend, I do spend some time on social media. Uh, I do think it's important for um, researchers, academics, even clinical people uh, to, to get out there and to tell people uh, who are looking for information. So I'm on Twitter at um, MacKinProf, M-A-C-K-I-N-P-R-O-F. Uh, Instagram at the same address, although I, I, I'm not as good at Instagram. Uh, I'm terrible, and my sons will not allow me to be on TikTok, so don't look for me there. Uh, but I, I am on Facebook, smp.phd, uh, or Stuart Phillips. Um, I'm easy to find most places. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, I, I would say I would get on some other platforms, but I'm just I'm generally not very good at that. But uh, and, and people send me emails all the time. I get questions out of the blue. I try and answer most people. I, I'll be honest. I'm feeling about 80 to 100 emails a day. So uh, stay tuned. I, I, I try to get back to most people. All right, good. Well, I'm wondering if we should thank your sons or not for keeping you off of TikTok, but I, but I, but I enjoy following you on Twitter. So I, I did. it's terrible. They just, they're, 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 it's like they're embarrassed by for their dad, you know? <laughs> so I, I'm like, yeah, okay. It, it's, it's sort of outstripped my, uh, my, uh, you know, boomer stage, uh, gen X knowledge or whatever it is. So yeah, go from there. Yeah. But I can definitely give the thumbs up for Twitter. You're, you're definitely a good follow on Twitter. So I'd recommend that for that. sure. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate your time and your knowledge here today on the Diet Doctor podcast. My pleasure, Brett. Thanks for having me. 